Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Attention, friends. Are you ready to embark on a journey into the unknown this Mother's Day? Prepare to dive into the depths of your family's history with mylifeinabook.com. Each week, mylifeinabook.com sends intriguing questions, uncovering the thrilling tales of your mom's past, and then she can either type her response or use their voice-to-text feature. From daring escapes to nail-biting encounters, her life becomes an epic adventure waiting to be explored. This Mother's Day, give the gift of excitement and intrigue with mylifeinabook.com. It's a thrilling ride through your mom's life that you won't want to miss. I gave this to my mom last year, and let's just say I didn't know my mom as well as I thought I did. Check out mylifeinabook.com and use code SHANE at checkout for 10% off. Create an unforgettable gift for your mom this Mother's Day. That's mylifeinabook.com and use code SHANE for 10% off today. Many songwriters write about real-life events, either those that they have experienced firsthand or ones that they have heard about. Woody Guthrie was no exception. Woody Wilson Guthrie was born in Oklahoma in 1912. He was introduced to music by his mother, who would play him all genres as he grew up. After his mother was institutionalized in his teens, he started to travel, and at the age of just 19, he met and married his first wife, Mary. They lived in Pampa, Texas, and had three children. At the height of the Great Depression, and unable to support his family any longer, Woody moved on again, looking for ways to make money. He took odd jobs, earned money playing his guitar, and singing in bars and taverns. He eventually made his way to Los Angeles. By 1941, Woody was making his first recordings as an American folk singer. Woody went on to write some of the most powerful and thought-provoking protest songs ever recorded and became an icon for many musicians, including Bob Dylan. His political activism and consistent advocacy for civil rights 
racial justice, and economic equality inspired many others to stand up for their rights and fight back. Woody scrawled, This machine kills fascists on his guitar, and he meant it. He is best known for his songs, This Land is Your Land, Pastures of Plenty, and Roll On Columbia. But he wrote many, many more, such as 1913 Massacre, which he penned in 1941. The lyrics to 1913 Massacre are as follows. Take a trip with me in 1913 To Cali, Michigan in the copper country I'll take you to a place called Italian Hall And the miners are having their big Christmas ball I'll take you in a door and up a high stairs Singing and dancing is heard everywhere I'll let you shake hands with the people you see And watch the kids dance round the big Christmas tree You ask about work and you ask about pay They'll tell you they make less than a dollar a day Working their copper claim, risking their lives So it's fun to spend Christmas with children and wives There's talking and laughing and songs in the air And the spirit of Christmas is there everywhere Before you know it, you're friends with us all And you're dancing around around in the hall Well a little girl sits down by the Christmas tree lights to play the piano so you gotta keep quiet Hear all this fun you would not realize that the copper boss thug men are milling outside The copper boss thugs stuck their heads in the door One of them yelled and he screamed there's a fire a lady, she hollered, there's no such a thing. Keep on with your party, there's no such a thing. A few people rushed and there's only a few. It's just the thugs and the scabs fooling you. A man grabbed his daughter and he carried her down. But the thugs held the door and he could not get out. And then others followed a hundred or more But most everybody remained on the floor The gun thugs, they laughed at their murderous joke While the children were smothered on the stairs by the door Such a terrible sight I never did see We carried our children back up to their tree The scabs outside still laughed at their spree and the children that died, there was 73. The piano played a slow funeral tune, and the town was lit up by a cold Christmas moon. The parents, they cried, and the miners, they moaned. 
see what your greed for money has done. Michigan's northern peninsula was rife copper mining country. This was big business, making huge profits for the mining companies, but giving little pay and benefits to their workers. Many of the workers were immigrants who had moved from Europe in the search of the new world and the amazing opportunities that had been promised to them if they moved to the United States. By 1913, there were three dominant copper mines in the area, then known as Copper Country, Calumet, and Hesla Mining Company. Quincy Mine and the Copper Range Company. Calumet and Hesla Mining Company were by far the largest and had about 15,000 employees. As mines in Cornwall, England started to fail, the Cornish miners traveled the world to find new locations, taking their expertise and knowledge with them. Therefore, many of the mines in the United States operated much like those in Cornwall, using a contract system of the payment for the miners. The contract system involves a small group of contractors, more often than not, they would be related, contracting with the mine owners to carry out specific tasks. They would be paid piecework, usually by the cubic fathom of rock they extracted. A cubic fathom is equivalent to 6.12 cubic meters. The issue is that, while these miners had reasonably good rates of pay, all of their other underground workers were paid very poorly, and were treated as low-class workers. As well as poor pay, the conditions the men worked in were terrible. The management were mean, and the hours were exhausting. Miners worked up to 12 hours a day, six days a week, with just one day off to rest and see their families. For this, they would earn just $2.50 per day. They were required to provide and pay for their own supplies, including their mining jackets, boots, gloves, and their mining caps, which had a carbide lamp on the front. Their day started very early in the morning in the shaft house. There they would climb into a man car. This was basically a wooden cart with 10 rows of benches that would hold 30 men in total. Once they were ready, their arms pulled onto their sides and their heads down. The bell cord was pulled and the cart was lowered into the shaft. After the initial bump, they would hear the clickety-click of the cartwheels running over the rails until they reached their destination. They would then walk through the mine to where they were working, carrying explosives, drills, ladders, ropes, and whatever else they needed for that day. The lamps on their helmets provided their main source of light. It contained two small chambers. The top one was filled with water and they would pour carbide into the bottom chamber. The water trickled down into the carbide and ignited when struck with a flint. The light given out by the lamps was poor and with uneven surfaces and rocks jutting out at all angles. It was easy to trip and fall, causing serious injury. This was not to their only potential danger, though. The rocks surrounding the miners were unstable. Sections would break off and fall, and the men would get injured or even killed if they were in the wrong place at the wrong time. The wooden mine ladders were never repaired, and they were old and rotten, resulting in many accidents and injuries as they gave way when used. And then there were the explosives. Live explosives in enclosed spaces were a recipe for disaster. Many miners lost limbs, or even their lives, checking why an explosive hadn't gone off. 
it wasn't unusual in the big mines for a person to die every single week and for up to a dozen to be maimed or suffer serious injury. Larry Lankton wrote a book called Cradle to Grave. In this, he claims that an underground worker had a 1 in 200 chance of getting killed while at work and a 1 in 3 chance of being so seriously injured at work that they had to take time off work to recover, unpaid of course. There were also ongoing health issues from breathing in the rock dust, meaning that many suffered severely later in life. And we are not just talking about grown men here. Children also worked in these conditions, including very young children, some as young as five or six years old. Technological advancements were really the straw that broke the camel's back. Originally, miners used two or three man drills, so a team of two or three men would work together on one drill on a contract. But this all changed in 1913 when one-man drills were introduced. They were faster and more efficient, and they also required one operator, so the mining companies could save money, which meant redundancies. The new drills were large, heavy pieces of machinery. As well as operating alone, the worker was also responsible for moving and transporting the large machine, and lifting it up and down onto the post with no support. There was no extra pair of hands to help, and if the miner got into trouble, it was tough luck. To add insult to injury, mine owners also decided to pay miners for their hours, not their productivity, which meant their wages went down. Those that were on contracts were moved to hourly rates, hitting the miners hard in the pocket. But the mine owners in Michigan didn't care. The boom was over, they were having to work much harder for their profits. They had to dig deeper and deeper to get the copper. Production and hauling prices were increasing, and new mines had been discovered in Montana and Bisbee that could produce the copper cheaper and pay their miners more. It was all too much. In the book, Community and Conflict, A Working Class History of the 1913-14 Michigan Copper Strike, and Italian Hall Tragedy. Author Gary Kanunen says, quote, Mine managers thought of workers as their men, and they could do for the most part what they wanted with those men, hire and fire at will, raise and lower wages, and put as much money into safety and mines as they wanted. He also said of one of the one-man drills, quote, It was a win-win situation for mine management. While it was a loss for miners, Almost half of the number of skilled miners would have been out of a job with the implementation of the one-man drill. As you can see, the working conditions were appalling. There were no worker rights. The mine owners did what they wanted, and as a result, 7,000 workers had joined the Western Federation of Miners, WFM, by 1913 to try and improve their conditions. The issues were discussed at length with the WFM, the main point being the discontent at the introduction of the one-man drill. The workers wanted to strike to make the mine owners listen to them. The WFM wanted to hold out a bit longer. They were sure that the members would join the union, and this would make their case a lot stronger. But under mounting pressure, the WFM declared an ill-prepared strike on July 23, 1913. The workers were demanding an eight-hour working day, a minimum of $3 a day for all underground workers, and a return to the two-man drill. 
the strike was unpleasant. With the majority of the miners on strike, the miners were forced to shut down. The mine owners called in the National Guard to help protect the mines, and they hired people to instill fear in the miners to try and force them to return to work. The hired heavies were called strike breakers, and they would use any means possible to get the miners back to work. In one incident, they allegedly killed two strikers in broad daylight. The mine owners rejected the government's offer of arbitration. They believed that the miners would have no choice but to come back in the winter, as they wouldn't have the means to provide for their families during the winter months. Christmas 1913 was looming. Six months into the strike, it was going to be miserable for a lot of families. There was very little food, no money for presents, and no sign of the strike coming to an end. To lighten the mood, the ladies' auxiliary of the WFM decided to hold a holiday party for the children. It was to be a fun event held on Christmas Eve at 2pm. The party was held on the second floor of Calumet's Italian Hall, up a very steep stone staircase. 500 children and 200 adults showed up for the festivities. While the snow covered the pavements outside, the hall was full of laughter and singing as families gathered to enjoy the food and tried to forget the struggle of the last six months. At around 4.30pm, as day turned into night, families started to leave to go home to their family Christmas celebrations. Presents were being passed out on the stage by the Calumet Women's Auxiliary President, Annie Clemonk, and the children gathered around to make sure they didn't miss out. There were mittens, toys and candy, and the children were excited and grateful for what they received. Suddenly, the celebrations came to an abrupt halt. A voice was heard from the bottom of the stairs yelling, FIRE! Later, eyewitnesses said that the man was wearing a long, dark coat with a button labelled Citizens' Alliance and a hat which obscured his face. The Citizens' Alliance were a vicious group organised by employers who were anti-strikes and anti-unions. Everyone stopped. For a split second, the room was silent. And then, chaos ensued. Parents grabbed their children. Siblings grabbed each other and they headed in a huge wave towards the very steep staircase, the only way out of the building. Volunteer firefighters arrived at the scene, but unable to do anything from street level, they had to climb up a rickety and dangerous fire escape to attempt to access the upper floor and rescue people. But it was too late. Those who reached the bottom of the stairs first were trapped. The doors at the bottom were blocked from the outside. There was no way out. But people were panicking. They didn't understand what was happening. They just kept pushing and pushing to get out. Those at the front were trampled. Those squashed in the throng of people on the stairs were suffocated. And still, people kept pushing and pushing. The panic stopped. There was no fire. There was no smoke. There was nothing. But now there were bodies. Children, parents and grandparents laying dead on the stairs and in the hallway. 73 people, including 59 children, most of Finnish origin, dead. The youngest victim was just two and a half years old, and the oldest was 66. Some families lost 
all of their children. But why? What happened? Why would somebody shout fire if there wasn't one? On December 28, 1913, a mass funeral was arranged for the victims of the tragedy. The bodies were collected from the town hall, were laid out side by side, as if they were sleeping. There was a huge procession that drew in about 20,000 mourners and stretched from the town to a cemetery two miles away. The local families were joined by 50 iron miners from neighboring towns who arrived by train as well as a brass band and a chorus of strikers who sang hymns during the procession. Horse-drawn funeral carriages and cars carried the adults while the children's little white coffins were carried by hand to the various churches and then to the ceremony to be laid to rest. The streets were lined with mourners. The cemetery was full, with people climbing trees to get a better view. Some were buried alone, others in family graves, while a few were buried in long trenches next to each other. Everyone was grief-stricken. How had this happened? They wanted answers, and they directed their anger toward the mining companies and the Citizens' Alliance. The coroner started his inquest into what happened on December 24, 2013. He interviewed many people, including those who were not actually at the hall that afternoon. He also insisted on conducting most of the interviews in English, and required answers in English too. That was difficult for many people, as English was not their first language, and they found it very hard, and in some cases impossible, to communicate. The president of the WFM, Charles Moyer, demanded a proper investigation. He sent telegrams demanding answers, but none were forthcoming. In fact, Moyer himself, at the mercy of a gang of thugs, who beat him, shot him, and bundled him on a train before promising to kill him if he dared to return. In early March of 1914, a subcommittee from the U.S. House of Representatives arrived in Copper County to investigate the strike and to gather evidence regarding the events of Christmas Eve. They interviewed 20 witnesses, eight stating that the perpetrator was wearing a Citizens Alliance button on his coat. The culprit or culprits of the 1913 Italian Hall tragedy was never identified. No one was ever arrested. No one was ever charged. People speculated that the man was an ally of the mine owners and that they wanted to disrupt the festivities. But surely they didn't want their actions to result in the death of so many innocent people, did they? The strike lasted for nine months total. It failed to achieve its demands, but this was probably down to many of the original miners leaving the area after the tragedy. When the Italian Hall was demolished in 1984, the front archway was left standing. There is a state historical marker there and a green plaque that says, Italian Hall. The Italian Hall was built in 1908 as headquarters for Colomet's Benevolent Society. The society, organised along ethnic lines, encouraged and financially aided immigrants and provided relief to victims of hardship. Following the 1913 Christmas Eve tragedy, the hall continued to be used for nearly five decades. The two-storey red brick building was raised in 1984, 
through the efforts of the Friends of the Italian Hall and Local 324 of the AFL-CIO. The site of the building became a memorial park dedicated to the people who lost their lives in 1913. All victims of the tragedy are buried in Lakeview Cemetery, Calumet, Michigan. On findagrave.com, we were able to find all of the victims of the 1913 massacre. Here are what some of their entries say. Teresa Rinaldi died age 11. She was survived by her parents, Joseph and Teresa, who were immigrants from Italy. Teresa is buried with her grandparents. Their grave is marked by a carved grey stone cross with the wording translated into English. Here rest the departed members of the family of Giuseppe Rinaldi. Maria Elizabeth Wara Nimella died aged 22 alongside her husband Abram, aged 25. They had a son, Reno, aged just six months old when the tragedy happened. Reno was saved by his mother who held him over her head on the Italian hall staircase. After becoming an orphan, Reno was raised by his aunt. Agnes Mihelkic died aged seven alongside her sister Elizabeth aged eight and her brother Paul aged five. They were survived by their parents Joseph and Mary from Croatia along with five siblings. Their graves are marked with a carved grey stone cross the inscription is unreadable. Edwin Heikinen died on his seventh birthday, alongside his brothers Elis, aged nine, and Eno, aged ten. Their older brother Axel, aged eleven, was trapped and injured but survived. The boys were survived by their parents John and Edla, originally from Finland, and six siblings. The boys have a simple rectangular grey stone grave marker that says Kaikinen, 1904 Elis, 1906 Edwin, 1903 Eno. And then down the side it says died in 1913. There is a quote on the Find a Grave website that says A story related by journalist Ella Bloor reveals the depth of the impoverished strikers' bitterness over the deaths at the Italian Hall and who they held responsible. The mother of three Finnish children killed at the Italian Hall, presumably referring to Kustava, was offered money for funeral expenses by the mine owner backed Citizens Alliance. She refused to take the money, denouncing it as blood money. She also reportedly had to be held back from throwing herself into her son's graves at the funeral. Victoria Burkar died age nine. She was with her brother Carl, aged six, at the Italian Hall when the tragedy occurred. Carl said he saw the man who gave the false alarm. Victoria was survived by her parents John and Mary, from Croatia, and two siblings. Her grave marker looks a lot more modern than many of the others, and is rectangular, made of a pinky-coloured stone, and simply says, Victoria Burkar, 1904-1913, Italian Hall. Eleanor Manley died aged 26. Eleanor, a Finnish immigrant, was pregnant when she died, alongside her four-year-old son, Wesley, and her sister, Seda, aged 10. She is buried with her son and next to her sister. She was survived by her husband, Herman, and her two other sons. Widower Herman Alla died aged 60. He was trapped on the staircase 
but managed to save his young daughter Irene, aged four, who managed to escape with just a broken arm. He was survived by his seven children. We will probably never know the intentions of the man or men that yelled fire that day. Was it just to ruin the festivities? Was their aim to cause death? Were they hired by someone to cause trouble? Or were they just pranksters who thought it would be funny? What we do know is that 73 innocent people lost their lives that day. Parents lost their children. Children lost their siblings. And some children were left orphaned. Those that survived witnessed the horror of seeing their loved ones trampled and suffocated. They heard the screams of those trapped as they succumbed to death. They will never forget the terror they themselves experienced. This was not an accident. This was deliberate, and no one ever paid for this horrific crime. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. 